What do we tell the people that we lead when everything around us is falling apart? Welcome to the Rooftop Podcast, and that is a question that I have heard a lot lately, and it's a question that I heard from a business owner named Peter, who owns a really, really prominent catering company in Central Florida. And as you can imagine, with COVID raging for over a year and a half now, he has, um, and his people have really endured a lot of hardship. They, they thought that they were coming out of the woods with this Delta variant and then boom, right back at it and uh, things starting to recede again. And his question to me in a room full of entrepreneurs was, what do I do about this? What do I tell, how do I lead my people through another series of, of, of this frustration when I'm not even sure how it's going to happen and I don't know necessarily what to do? I appreciated that question from him more than I, I could probably could even say on this podcast because it's such a real question and it's where I am right now in my life. As I'm talking to you, I'm sitting out on the front porch of my parents' house in Kentucky. They, um, they're getting on up in years and they have some health issues. And so my son Cooper and I, we came up here, even though we're running really hard right now, to just spend a few days with them. So I'm sitting up here on this porch. And so if you hear the birds in the background and, uh, and all of the sounds of nature, I'm, I'm on this farm just looking out at this, uh, this beautiful landscape that I've known for so many years. And my, all I can think of is um, I feel tired. I feel tired. I feel like I'm holding back um, just this. Uh, it's, it's like a dam holding back millions of gallons of water. <laughs> and I, I have to hold it back because there's, in my life, much work to be done, just like in yours. And I think in Peter's and, and I feel that, that frustration and it's beyond frustration. It's, um, it's this inability to know what to do, but yet have people look at you, relying on you, hoping, counting on that you will know what to do. Um, as we go through the ups and downs of the world we're in right now that are just unprecedented. And Amy Cuddy, presence coach, I think the term I heard her use in an article recently of what we're going through in this pandemic, at least with the ups and downs and the false starts, is pandemic flux syndrome. And it's just it's volatility, right? It's, it's persistent volatility over time where you think you're coming out of the woods into the sunlight and boom, you know, another storm rolls in. And... Um, and I feel that for me, it's, 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 it's maybe a little different contextually, but I think, I think the feeling is there. And I, and I think many of you listening to this can relate to it, but, um, to answer that question, I want to tell a, a, a story that I'd, I'd never, it's unfolding right now. It's a story that I don't know the ending to it. And, um, I think that is something for starters that we as leaders have to recognize is that. We are living in a time of story, and we may not know how the story ends, but we still have to tell it as we go. I'm, I'm, I'm confident of that. I'm, I'm confident that right now in this time that can get dark and this time that can get challenging, we may find ourselves in the rough seas of the churn 
all around us and we um, we don't know which way the shore is we don't know we, we we're going to we're going to make a decision and we're going to go with the best uh, estimate that we have of where we think the shore is and and we're going to you know solicit and elicit the input of those around us to make that decision but ultimately we don't know completely how it's going to end but we still have to tell the story and as people row and and dig in we still have to pull up and we have to tell that story and remind everyone of where we are in the journey. And this is a really difficult thing to do. It's, it's, it's to me, it's some of the most, it's the bravest, uh, the hardest, the clunkiest, the uh, most terrifying storytelling that we can do. But it's what humans have actually been doing with story uh, in real time and what great leaders have done with story you know, for as long as humans have walked the earth. I mean, it's what it's part of what I call narrative competence in the rooftop competencies, those Lorenzian skills. It's, it's the ability to use storytelling in real time to meet your goals and, and get where you need to get. And certainly, storytelling on the move, storytelling without the ending in sight is um, something that this owner of this catering company will have to do. It's something that I'm having to do right now and it's something that you'll have to do. So I want to get into the story that I'm telling right now that I don't really know the end of it. And, you know, to, to bring it home, I'm going to make it more personal than, than just the universal kind of macro collective story. This is a, this is a personal story. And, but I think the old saying uh, that what's personal is universal has never been more appropriate. I'm sure many of you, as you listen to this, you have seen the events that have unfolded in Afghanistan. And regardless of where you stand politically, and I hope that you can set that aside as you listen to this, because part of the churn and the trance-like state we go into these days, as soon as we hear a word or phrase that triggers what our group tells us we're supposed to think, we shut down. But I hope that you'll, you'll stay in a parasympathetic state and listen to me. But the, the Afghan situation has been spiraling out of control for, for quite some time now. As I record this podcast, it is, uh, you know, it's kind of like the 20th of August, kind of like the 20th. It's the 20th of August um, as I'm recording. Um, the, the crisis in Afghanistan has been going on for quite some time, for several weeks now, I guess. I don't really know because I'm very tired. I haven't slept uh, much. And I, particularly in the last few days, uh, sleep has, has, has really not and when it does it's in fits and starts of 20 to 30 minutes like when I was back in special forces uh, operating in Afghanistan and in fact for me this whole Afghanistan thing has triggered um, something deeply in me that I don't understand I, I don't understand it I, I, I know that um, it has done the same thing to many of my my peers uh, it has done the same thing to me and I'm not just talking about military I'm talking about those brave men and women from USAID, the expeditionary diplomats from State Department, military families, certainly our Gold Star families. This thing in Afghanistan has uh, Vietnam veterans. Oh my goodness, they've had to watch two embassies close with the flags flown out by the ambassador on a helicopter, and I can't imagine what that must be like. And for Americans who um, love their country and love who we are as a people, they're 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 triggered, but. Particularly for those who serve there, um, this has had an effect on us that I don't, I don't frankly understand. I, it's, it's not good. I know that um, in some ways. It's, it's, and it's built upon what has happened 
um, already through COVID, you know, a year and a half of isolation and being away from people and the churn and the, and, the, and, the, and the contempt that people are showing for one's neighbors, the divisionism that our politicians on both sides are demonstrating and the way they're basically pushing us into shadow tribalism, um, that alone is, you know, triggering. But then when you add the, um, uh, the Afghanistan piece to it, and, you know, and some people will go, oh, look at the poor, Viet- uh, the poor Afghan veteran. He's triggered. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm, I'm highly functional. And I'm frankly uh, getting after it more than I have in a very long time to make big strategic things happen, and that's that's what I do. But I can feel a difference. I can feel the way this is um, impacting me, and it feels like all the shit I used to push down when I was uh, in special forces, and so that I could stay in the game and keep going. There's a cost to that. I don't know what the cost of that is. I felt some measure of it when I when I left the military and became a civilian. But now it's like I'm right back in it, and I know so many of people listening to this feel that way right now, because as we're speaking, Afghanistan has, has literally plummeting into a level of chaos of, of epic proportions. When we went into Afghanistan in 2001 and 2002, that country had been at war for 35 years. It had, it had undergone occupation by the Soviets. It had undergone uh, a, a horrible ethnic civil war that killed millions of people. And then the Taliban's oppressive rule starting in 93, where if you went out in public as a woman and you were not covered or with a male escort, you were stoned to death. Um, and then, of course, the horrific attacks of 9-11, and we went back in for retribution and payback to walk the Taliban down and then pivoted into some kind of long-term nation-building, capacity-building mission that lasted for 20 years, four times longer than World War II. And what a lot of people don't know about Afghanistan is that country actually was a very modern country in many respects, particularly in the urban areas and the cities in the north. Um, if you look at pictures, you can Google, you know, uh, 1970s Afghanistan styles, and you'll see women in miniskirts. You'll see parties that look very Western. <clears throat> you'll see hippies driving across the, uh, uh, the plains of Afghanistan in, in minivans. Like, it, it, it was a very, now, it was still also very rural, very conservative and that ultimately led to a clash and a tension that overthrew everything there and started a, a journey back down into the world of tribalism that was handily exploited by the Soviets in their invasion. And then just a continued application of horrific warfare that thread by thread, fabric by fabric, eroded the structure of Afghanistan, not just at the city level, not just at the political level, not at the formal level, but at the informal level, the ability to resolve disputes, the ability to farm, the ability to manage grazing livestock, to manage forestry, um, all of those things fell away because it, in, in the rural area, it was, it, it was an, um, it was a oral storytelling culture and the elders were mostly killed, targeted, or just pushed into hiding over this 35-year period. So the infrastructure for informal society, which is, you know, which is mostly what that country is, it's mostly village, it's mostly tribal, it was destroyed along with the government, the army, everything. And so when we went in there, that's where we found this place. And the Taliban had taken what was already decimated to rubble and no, no resemblance of either the tribal society of the 70s, pre-70s, or the formal society of Kabul, and they, they took it even further. They, they brought in medieval justice, and, and they put a level of oppression, and they sponsored global terrorists. 
And, and so by the time we got there, that place was in complete disarray, unlike anything I'd ever seen before when I rolled in a few years later. It was, you know, and, and, and we didn't know what to do with that. We tried to put our uh, Western um, fingerprints on it. We tried to put a liberal democracy in place. We tried to build an army in our image. Um, you know, we brought in all kinds of nations from NATO who were emotionally well-intended. But what we created was um, a, an even bigger mess that is now unfolding. And, it, and, and we did some good things, too. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not one of these ones that's saying this is a pointless war and all these things. What I'm trying to do is give you some context if you didn't have experience with Afghanistan, that you can understand the story I'm about to tell. The story I'm about to tell is about a young man um, who I'll call Space Monkey. I'm not going to give his name because uh, Space Monkey, as I'm recording this, is still on the move right now and uh, trying to get back to the United States. Uh, Space Monkey is one of four uh, primary ethnic groups in Afghanistan. There are Tajiks, Hazaras, Pashtuns. Pashtuns are very, very tribal. They comprise most of the Taliban and Uzbeks. Uzbeks and Tajiks and Hazaras mostly live in the northern part of the country, and they are uh, opposed to the, the Pashtuns. They are less tribal. Um, they are typically um, very involved in uh, the kind of governments that we understand, um, and less, less of the collective, less of the tribal approach. That's just been kind of generalizing. But anyway, Space Monkey, his father was an Uzbek, and he fought against the Soviets, and he was killed. And Space Monkey grew up uh, in the shadow of the Afghan invasion. And not that many years ago, this young man joined the Afghan National Army. He spoke great English and, uh, and Dari. And he decided that he wanted to be an Afghan commando. The special forces and other special operations units created very elite units, as we often do, in the 20-year uh, war that we did in Afghanistan. And we became very, very close partners. Now, these are not the conventional forces or the, the, the large-scale police. These are the very elite units that look like ranger forces. They look like special forces. They look, you know, they have this. And again, every elite force, the SEALs, the rangers, <clears throat> unnamed groups, Green Berets, we, we, we designed and partnered with and built and trained uh, these forces that we built very deep relationships with. And we went into combat with them. We stood at their shoulder. They were very proficient, much more proficient than the typical Afghan conscript or Afghan policeman who gets just, you know, barely any enough pay to pay their family. They have to take bribes to survive. They, they have uh, partner forces that manage them from the U.S. or other countries that may or may not be interested in what they do. Sometimes it's an 18-year-old private <laughs> that doesn't really even understand why he's talking to this seemingly primitive person. But for our partner forces, <clears throat> they, are, they are our family. We, we get to know their family. We go on missions with them. If they're wounded or killed in combat, we, we move their family, the body back to their family. We, we take care of their families. We, we, we build long-standing relationships with them at an organizational level. We do exchanges. We bring them over. And in, by, you know, uh, late into the war, we were actually bringing uh, commandos and Afghan special forces over to the United States to go to our training. And it just so happened that Space Monkey was one of those uh, individuals. And if I slip up and say his name, it'll be his first name and, and it, it'll still keep him clean. But Space Monkey uh, uh, joined the commandos. He was amazing. Uh, he went through the commando training and then he joined an outfit called Afghan National Army Special Forces or ANASF. And this organization was designed to um, replicate what special forces do. So they had 15 man detachments to our 12 man detachments. 
engineers, weapon sergeants, medical sergeants. They had a, um, I believe they had, I want to say they had a chaplain with them uh, for, because they are so deeply ingrained with Islam. But um, they would go out in the villages where we were doing village stability and they would live next to the U.S. Special Forces team. And so you had indigenous uh, people, locals, that were being led by these Afghan National Army Special Forces. And they got to, you know, they were really good, uh, a lot of them. Well, Nizam, uh, I almost did it. Space Monkey was selected to go to the United States and to go to the United States and attend our Special Forces qualification course. And he did. And over the years, he built many, many sponsors uh, who just loved him. They, they loved working with him. They continued to move him through the ranks. He, he got to the rank of Sergeant First Class in the Afghan Elite Forces. He was a graduate of our qualification course. He then went to work for a special mission unit. But that's when things started to go south. All along, I stayed in touch with Nizam, uh, <laughs> Space Monkey. I spoke at his, um, uh, I spoke at his, uh, his graduation from the uh, Afghan Special Forces. Uh, I flew him into his first mission set in northern uh, Kandahar with my dear friend Mullah Mike, and I went on combat patrols with him. I observed him in combat and how brave he was. That's where he earned the name Space Monkey. He fought like he was from another planet. He was uh, shot through the face. He would run to the sound of the guns uh, before most people could even get their bearings. Um, and so he was highly regarded as a fierce fighter. And I maintained contact with him uh, throughout the years, even though um, I returned back home and he would send uh, Christmas cards to my family, even though he's Muslim. Uh, I wrote letters of recommendation for him. I'm just very, very fond of this young man. And in many ways, think of him as my son. And uh, so as things started to spiral in Afghanistan, it became very clear he had left the Afghan uh, National Army. Um, he had a lot of uh, injuries and was just ready to, to uh, start a new life. He was doing security work for a company uh, guarding infrastructure in Afghanistan. And he started getting text messages and threats from the Taliban saying, um, we know who you are. We know you're a commando. We're going to... Uh, overrun your site. We're going to cut your head off. We're going to send it back to your family. Uh, very explicit threats. They knew his phone number. They were getting through to him, and it was very clear he was going to get overrun. So he had to do an emergency, what we call an emergency exfil, using some old friends of his from the commandos. He managed to get out of there, and um, and he went to Kabul, the capital city of Afghanistan, as so many Afghans did as things started to fall apart. Now, what's starting to happen at this point is the administration, the Biden administration, has announced that they are pulling all Afghan, uh, all U.S. forces out before even uh, the, the deadline of September 11th. And by pulling out, I'm not talking about leaving residual forces in place. I'm talking about our forces started to unass and leave bases like Kandahar and Bagram, massive bases, that were there even when the Soviets were there and were the logistical hubs. It was where aircraft launched out of. It was where resupplies launched out of. And we had had a footprint there for 20 years. All of a sudden, almost overnight, we, we, we abandoned those places. And with that went the artillery. With that went the air power. And so the, the Afghan National Army, the Afghan police, they had no top cover. They had no advisory support. And, 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 and so things started to collapse very quickly. The other thing is that during the peace talks that were taking place, uh, far back as the Trump administration, um, Afghan for our forces were not venturing out, were not allowed to venture out. And so the Taliban 
which were primarily rural insurgents and had, we had kept them pushed back. That was the whole thing. That's what a lot of people don't understand is that pushing this insurgent force back and keeping it pushed back while capacity was built precluded groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS from gathering enough strategic posture to project attacks against the United States and the West. And you saw that for 20 years. But when this, when this withdrawal happened and the Taliban were able to inc- incrementally gain ground an inch closer and closer to the cities while these peace talks were happening, they also mounted a nefarious letter campaign, night letters that were sent to police chiefs, district chiefs, army commanders, uh, nonprofits saying, the second the Americans leave, we are going to we sending them pictures of their children. You'll receive her head in the mail. You know, I mean, just they had the fix was already in. They had played a classic insurgency play, which was to basically terrify the resilient leaders in the local community silently before the first bullet was ever fired. And so when people scratch their heads and they look and they say, wow, how did this happen so fast? Well, that's what happened was because the, the, the U.S. pulled out so rapidly and abandoned their advisory role to include air power that the Taliban had already postured and had already engaged in fear-based behavior that had put them exactly where they wanted to be. So they moved right through and they moved right through rapidly. Nazam, and I said his name, got it wrong. Um, Space Monkey is watching all of this happen and he is you know, talking to, to me and uh, a reporter, a reporter who had actually met him over the years and uh, had really become friends with him. And the reporter and I were friends. We had uh, worked on things together. I know, a Green Beret and a reporter friends, but believe it or not, it actually happens. Um, and so the reporter was talking to me about Space Monkey. He's like, you know, I'm really worried about him. When they, if they get into Kabul, he's not going to make it. They're going to take him out. And he had been on this visa list for two years to try to get out. So we were scratching our heads. What are we going to do? Well, every day I'm getting these texts from Space Monkey that says, sir, today, Ghazni province fell. Today, Herat fell. Today, the Kandahar prison was um, attacked by the Taliban and the prisoners were released. I'm trying to find somewhere to go. Uzbekistan has closed down their embassy, no visas. Tajikistan has closed down their embassies. I am trapped in Kabul. And, you know, this is what, this is what we're getting every day over the last two weeks as the march up to the complete collapse of Kabul happens. And, you know, this is when the reporter and I, we start talking to each other and we're like, what are we going to do here? Because how are we going to get him out of the country if he doesn't have his visa approved? You know, what's going to happen, right? He's going he's gonna to get executed. Well, turns out, a lot of former Green Berets, a lot of former Rangers, a lot of former SEALs, a lot of former infantrymen, a lot of former USAID, State Department, were doing the same thing. They had built relationships with their interpreters, with their cultural advisors, with, uh, with their uh, commandos, and they were experiencing the same problem. And so all of these conversations were happening over digital mediums in a very informal yet um, organic kind of way. And when the embassy was evacuated, you know, we had already started uh, the State Department, um, and I'm just speaking candidly, the State Department waited way too long. They waited way too long to, um, to put these SIV visas through. And so there were thousands and thousands and thousands of Afghans stuck 
and you know there was a bottleneck. And the State Department had been warning about this to the administration for some time. And believe me, this isn't a political uh, podcast. I'm I'm not interested in assigning blame, uh, at least not right now. There's plenty to go around with all parties, um, but right now I'm just giving you as much context as I can. And I'm actually going to bring it back to to Peter's question. And I hope that you'll stay with me for that because I'm going to bring it back to Peter's question and answer that question in a way that I think it will answer yours as well about how do we lead when we're not sure how it's going to go. But what I will tell you, um, where the hell was I? All right. Well, things are starting to fall apart. We don't know how we're going to get uh, uh, Space Monkey out. We don't know how this is going to work. They start to announce that they are accelerating visa support. They are accelerating the, the work to get visas approved. And they're going to start doing that immediately. So there's some level of optimism there, right? And so we start pushing through. And Space Monkey even gets a call from his former employer that says, hey, we're just verifying your employment. So we're getting excited now because we know that that's really the last step before the chief of mission approval comes in. He goes in for a quick physical and he's out on an airplane with status back to the United States. And I had already done this with several of my close cultural advisors and interpreters several years prior. I had I'd helped push with a few other coworkers uh, their SIV visas, and so them and their family were here, and 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 they are doing amazing work, you know, here in the United States as first generation Afghan Americans. Um, but 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 not so for Space Monkey. He was trapped. He was stuck, and we were unsure how to get him out. Um, so as things start to collapse, this is when it really got sporty is when the embassy fell. The Taliban um, are coming in on the city. We're hearing that. I'm hearing it from Space Monkey. He's like, I can hear gunfire. Um, the, the Minister of Defense uh, compound has been attacked, multiple explosions. And all of a sudden, it's all over the news. It's all over the wire. Kabul is falling. Kabul is falling. And I mean, I can just rem- remember my blood running cold because I was already watching Afghanistan fall. And those of us who had fought there, particularly in the rural areas, we knew if you pulled out the advisory support completely the way it was done, you knew it was going to fall. But we thought at least that Kabul and the ring around Kabul would hold, but not so at all. In fact, the president of Afghanistan did a press conference and then got in a car, a bunch of cars loaded with cash and took off um, and, 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 you know, went to a third undisclosed country. Um, and, and, and left and took his, you know, whatever material resources he wanted to take with him and was gone. And now Afghanistan doesn't even have a president, like their president bailed on him, you know, and the army is just the, the Afghan army and the police, they are surrendering without a fight. They're surrendering without a shot fired. They just, they, they just walk away. They leave their weapons, all of the Humvees, the, the weapon systems that we had provided, they just, this, and this was why removing the advisors was such a terrible, terrible move that history will look back on. So all of that spoils of war, that battlefield recovery was available to the Taliban and they just moved right through the city and, and they started to take the city block by block very rapidly. Now, Space Monkey um, was in his apartment, his uncle's apartment, right? He's in his uncle's apartment living like Anne Frank, uh, can't go outside. You know, his uncle is getting uh, squirrely because he doesn't want him there. He doesn't want him there. He's going to get his family compromised. And so, and, and, and Space Monkey's not from Kabul, you know? And so he's like, how are we even going to get out of here? How am I going to, he goes, I have no place to go. 
And he's texting this to me and to the reporter. He's like, I, this is my only safe house. I have a pistol. That's it. I have no other place to go. I'm not from Kabul and I'm going to have to move soon. So it's getting desperate now. Like it's getting dire. The ambassador has flown out. The U.S. ambassador has flown out on a chopper that looks hauntingly like Saigon. And, and he flies, he flies out with the flag over to the, to the uh, Kabul International Airport. Now the Kabul International Airport is um, the only airport left with a U.S. presence because we bailed on those other big bases that we had so rapidly, Kandahar, Bagram, Jalalabad, um, we lost our ability to uh, have any air presence, right? There's no air bridge. And, you know, the, 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 so, so the only airfield we have is the actual international airport. And, and, and we still, so we flew every, we basically abandoned the embassy, burned everything. Oh, by the way, the Russian embassy and the Chinese embassy are still open for business, but that's a different discussion. We burned everything, and then we flew our diplomats over to the Kabul International Airport. They set up an emergency perimeter, um, and then they started trying to get them out first, and then they started to continue to try to work to get Afghans out. Complete chaos. No one knows what's going on. There is this, um, this perimeter around the airfield that the U.S. has put in place with a handful of soldiers, but really not enough, and it, it gets stormed by the Afghans who are trying to get on planes so desperate to get away from the Taliban rule as planes are flying out that some of them are tying themselves to the landing gear, right? And falling off the planes to their death at a thousand feet rather than be ruled by the Taliban. So any of the folks who want to say that Afghanistan was pointless and those kind of things, and that this is how the people want to be ruled, I would invite you to go back and watch those clips a few times at the airfield and ask yourself that question. It's simply not a statement of fact. Um, and so all of this chaos is happening, and our president directs um, deployment of forces into um, Kabul. Now, man, mind you, deployment of forces to replace the forces that we had just pulled out, right? So we had given up key terrain, airfields, and uh, positions where we could have helped hold at least to get our 10,000, 20,000 special immigrant visas, our high-risk Afghans out. We could have at least held that until September 11, flown them out in an orderly way. But instead, we redeployed 6,000 forces into the country, many of which who have never engaged in Afghanistan. So they roll in trigger happy um, to guard an airport that is being rushed by scared Afghans. So there's chaos. People get pushed back. Some got killed uh, in this unfortunate event. And this was the scene. So now we have Space Monkey hiding in his apartment like Anne Frank, his uncle's apartment, being told he needs to leave and get out of there. Um, and how are we going to get him to the airfield? Because that's what's being put out now. I need some coffee. Good Lord. They're putting out that the only way that SIV applicants can get out is they're accelerating the packets. They have a little cell there at the airfield that's working on it. <clears throat> but they're going to have to make their way in. There's nobody that's going to come and get them. They have to make their way into the airfield, and then they will get manifested on a U.S. flight, flown to a third country for the completion of the processing, and then on to the United States for visa status. What could possibly go wrong? So the reporter and I were, were like, okay, what are we going to do? And I said, well, you know what? I know a couple of people. I know a couple of people who know Space Monkey. I know a couple of people who uh, have very high regards for him, and it just so happens that this kind of stuff 
is the stuff I used to do a little bit and they used to do a little bit back in the day. And I think if we can get a group together uh, that can talk and collaborate, um, even if we don't have the answers, then maybe we can figure out a way to move Space Monkey from his location in his apartment to safety uh, where he's going to need to go in the airfield. Now, let me just let me just paint the complexity here of what we're talking about, because this gets to Peter's point, right? I'm going to try to weave all this shit together. Let me see if I can do this and my voice can hold. But I'm going to try to weave all this together. I want to weave this complexity together. Because what we're facing at this point is I'm in Tampa, Florida with my cell phone. I'm an old fart, just turned 53 years old. I've been retired from Special Forces for, what, eight, nine years? I still maintain my contacts because I, you know, I'm a Green Beret. And I, and I teach at, you know, certain locations that the skills are still valued. But for the most part, like, I'm, I'm retired. Like, I'm not, I'm not in that world anymore. So we are, we are Space Monkey's advocates, a, a, a national, like a, a producer, a reporter, and me. And, and so what, what we're up against here is we have to get him out of this little apartment, which is being actively probed now by Taliban fighters looking for, uh, you know, government loyalists. We've got to move him through denied territory, completely denied territory, right, uh, that have chel- Taliban checkpoints at every turn. He has to go through this capital city, this sprawling capital city with checkpoints at every turn with trigger happy, you know, opium high Taliban fighters that are just looking for, uh, you know, a, a former commando or a former ANA special forces guy to shoot in the face, like hungry for that. And so we got to move him through those checkpoints. And then if he doesn't get compromised in the checkpoints, then he has to go through a, a, a big Taliban perimeter around the Kabul International Airfield. Because apparently <clears throat> what the task force that flew in did was they met with a high level at the, at the uh, high level leader of the Taliban and said, listen, we're going to put a perimeter around this airport. We're going to get our diplomats out. We're going to get our American citizens out. And we're going to get as many Afghans out as we can. Do not screw with us or we will bring everything right back to you uh, the way we did on 2001. Now I'm paraphrasing, but but some conversation like that happened. I have on high authority, and the Taliban agreed to basically let the United States uh, exfil those selected people and then get us out of here once and for all, and they could govern. So they put this ring around the airfield, the Taliban do, and it's like thick, man. Taliban fighters all the way around the air, the entrances into the airfield. So not only does our guy got to move through um, all these checkpoints, but then he's got to get through the actual perimeter. And then, and he's going to get harassed, right? He's going to get harassed. And, 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 and then once he's through that, he's got to get up to those trigger-happy young, young Marines who have never been to Afghanistan, by the way. Most of them, even though it's a 20-year war, you know, we forget the fact that these kids are 18 years old and they haven't been to Afghanistan. So for them, this is this country is, is, is as daunting and scary um, as the first time that we went in there in 2001. So, and they're the ones guarding the airport. They're the ones that are letting Afghans come across and they're seeing all of these Afghans as potential threats uh, to the point that they even fired into the crowd. And I don't know what, who the guards were. I'm not saying the service, but it did happen. So he's got to get through that. And how is he going to show papers? How is he going to show documents, 
right? How's that going to work? Because if, if the Taliban take his phone and they look at the documents for his visa on his phone, then they're going to know who he is, right? So it's a real, real precarious situation. And this thing at the gate is going to be super hard to do. Plus, we don't know if he is, um, if he's, mani- he's not manifested on any aircraft because his visa application isn't done. So even if he gets through the wire, right, and on the other side, will they take him? Or will they just boot him right back out into the street where he's now been compromised? He can't go back to his safe house and he's going to get executed. That is how Tuesday started. <laughs> and when I tell you that I went back to this place, like my body and my mind and my spirit went back to this place, it really did. It, it, it just, it, it, it's like it just clicked on to another level of activity that, okay, we got to save, we got to save space monkey. So what are we going to do here? So I started, I got on this app called uh, Signal, which is an amazing app, um, and I speak, and I have no affiliation with them, but except that I used the hell out of them, and I'm really <laughs> impressed with them. Um, but we, we, we basically, we created, um, and we did this in special ops all the time when we were looking for bad guys, and we needed, what, what I needed was, I needed people who could help with a range of activities. I needed people who could help uh, move him. I needed uh, through all of these Talib- uh, all these Taliban checkpoints. I also needed people who could um, 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 help him get through the through the Taliban check the final Taliban checkpoint. I needed people who could get him at the gate on the U.S. side. I needed people who could get his uh, his manifest going on the aircraft. And look, every single one of those things that I just told you that was a complete showstopper. It was a different organization that owns it. Right, the State Department owns the vetting of the visa. Um, it's going to be the military that's going to let him through the wire. There's nobody going out to get him, so I'm going to have to find somebody indigenous that can move him through the city because he's not from there. Right, he's Uzbek and the Taliban are Pashtun, so they're going to they're going to spot him immediately. Right, so every single one of these, and it was like six, you know, and and, and then once he's once he's uh, once he's on the airplane, how do we track him? How do we keep up with him? How do we sponsor him when he gets to the United States? You know, <clears throat> so this is a wicked, complex, ill-formed problem, and there are no answers. And I certainly don't have them. I don't have the answers. I don't have a clue how we're going to do this. But here's the thing. I know some people, right? I have some relationships. I've built these relationships and I've cultivated these relationships for years and years and years. And I continue to cultivate them after I retired. And so I got into this app signal and I just started talking with people and I just kind of worked it one thing at a time. And, and by the way, many of them knew Nizam, but not all of them. Some of them, and I said it again, I'm just tired. Some of them did not know him, but they knew me. The bona fides were with me. They trusted me and they put their trust in me. And let me just give you a few examples on this. So the first question I had was, how do I move him, right? I'm going to have to move him. And that is not going to be an easy thing to do because the only, not only are there no military forces to move him, but he is an Uzbek. If he gets spotted at a checkpoint by a Pashtun Taliban, he's done. So what do I do? I called my old cultural advisor who I had helped get over here and the network that he grew up in is a massive network. It's the network that resisted the Soviets. And so it consists of all the ethnicities. They don't play that shit. They are, they're all about, if you share a foxhole with somebody, that's your tribe. 
And, and so, you know, we had a really good sense of reciprocity. We had a really good sense of work together. Um, and, um, you know, we had been, we had been, um, and we had been, um, doing this kind of work together for a long time. So when I told him what I was doing, he was like, I'll absolutely help you. I'll absolutely help you. My driver drives a taxi. He's posh He can get him through the checkpoints. And he goes, I'll start talking to my network. And so I added him to the signal room. Then I'm like, okay, that's cool. He'll, he'll start working that. Now we got to start thinking about how do we get him like, um, on the other side? How do we get people on the U S side that can help him? Who do I know? So I reached out to a, a buddy of mine who knew space monkey in special forces and is still in special forces. Turns out he's a commander. Turns out he's really connected. And so I talked to him. He's like, yep, I'm in. We're going to save space monkey. So he starts doing his thing and he starts talking through military channels on secure networks that I don't have access to any, anymore. Cause I'm a 53 year old old fart. Right? So Mullah Mike starts doing that. He starts working those channels. Then I got another buddy that also knew Space Monkey, fought with him in Cockrez, who now works in the interagency, Green Beret as well. We've maintained contact over the years, call him Will. He gets on the horn and he starts working interagency stuff. So now we're starting to work approvals. We're starting to work authorities. At this point, I don't even really care. I'm like, I need to have the right people in the room. I need some political uh, horsepower. And it just so happens that uh, Congressman Mike, former Green Beret, he and I worked together. I contacted him and I let him know what was going on. And I was like, look, this guy graduated our special forces qualification course. He's one of our regiment. We need to help him. Within minutes, I had his staffers on the phone with me. They were in the signal room. Then uh, it just so happened that, uh, that they started to bring people in. They started to bring in a connection from USAID. It turned out that one of the State Department people sitting at the consular desk in Co- uh, Kabul International was a former Green Beret. Before long, we had built this um, organic, informal apparatus that was framing the problem in ways that we could never do. In other words, each person was giving a perspective of what they saw that we couldn't see. You know, um, my, my, my Afghan friend said, okay, my driver just drove the route. Here's what's out there. And we sketched it out and we shared it. And then the USAID person would say, okay, here's the latest I'm hearing on manifest approvals. Write them like this. It got to the point that every, we had this holistic picture of what was happening and most of us were not on the ground. It was through narrative. It was through storytelling in real time that was happening. Nobody was trying to be the hero. Nobody was stepping on anyone. Everyone had a singular focus. We had named it Save Space Monkey. We had named it. That's what we were there to do. And then we started to frame it. And that's what we were doing. We were framing the problem, each person giving their perspective. Now, here's the thing. It it was not about the relationship to, to Space Monkey. It was about your relationship to the problem. You had to be relevant to the problem. If you weren't relevant to the problem, you weren't in the signal chat room. And if you weren't relevant to the problem, you didn't speak until you were relevant to the problem. So in other words, if I'm listening to all this and I don't have anything to say as people are talking about the best way for him to get approved in rapid succession, maybe it's this congressional staffer and the USAID person, I'm silent. I'm not talking, right? And there was that kind of discipline so that we named it, we framed it, and we got this holistic picture of what we saw. And then we realized, here's the thing, we're running out of time. 
the, the uh, Taliban are starting to lock down the checkpoints. Um, it is really getting uh, dangerous. If he doesn't make a move soon, we're gonna we're not gonna be able to get him in. So at that point, I actually and by this time we'd built a chat room of probably uh, fifteen people. Now we also have Space Monkey in there as well, but we did not put him in the main room. We put him in another room because we didn't want him to get confused by all of this, right? We had a couple of us that were talking to him. The ABC reporter's job, you know what his job was? Keep Space Monkey calm. Keep him dialed in. If he panics, we're all screwed. And so he did a masterful job of that. Uh, He kept him calm. He checked in on him. We would do it from time to time too. But when it was time for him to go, when it was time for him to move, I said, okay, I believe that uh, Mullah Mike needs to be the guy, and this is the uh, Special Forces uh, active duty guy, he needs to be the one to move him because he commanded him in combat. He has commanded him in combat. He trusts him. This is a very dangerous situation. He may not make it out of this alive. So, Mullah Mike, what are your thoughts? And he was like, yep, absolutely, that's the way it needs to go. So everyone agreed, no talking to Space Monkey, no comms, it's going to be maddening, but Mullah Mike's going to drive. And so that's what happened. Mullah Mike gets on direct comms with him on a different signal uh, room, just those two and a couple of us who are monitoring. And he says, Space Monkey, it's time to go. This is your moment. You've trained for this. Here's what you're going to do. And he gave him the, you know, we'd, we'd already given him the plan. And sure enough, my Afghan friend's driver shows up. And now here's the thing, you all. There's no comms. <laughs> he can't communicate while he's moving through. He can't be on his phone, right? So, so we have to trust what? We have to trust the plan. We have to trust each other. And we have to trust Space Monkey. This is the thing that I'm seeing these days so bad is that when things get bad and we put our guidance out there and we ask our people to do something and then we follow up before they get a chance to do it, we don't trust them to do it. But we had to do that. We had to let it go and, and, and trust the timing of the operation and that he would come back up on the net if he made it through the perimeter on the other side, close to the, to the, to the U.S. line, and then we, could start to, then we could start to put the rest of the plan in motion. But here's the cool thing. We're updating the other room as it's happening, and we're just putting information in there. Okay, he's moving now. He's going this way. Here's what's happening. And we're updating them in real time. So what are they doing? They're getting their people ready to go. They're talking to their people. Um, my USAID friend and my congressional staffer friend, they're working to manifest. They're working to make sure he's going to be on an airplane. Is it time for him to do that yet? No. But they're shaping it as it goes. They're staying in their lane. They're playing their position. Right, because we named it, we framed it, and now we're taming it. We got to tame this thing down. It's still a wicked problem. We still don't. One, it's so ill-formed. One wrong thing could go, could go south, and everything goes south. But we're just taming it. Where each person is running in their lane, over communicating, and all of a sudden, a few uh, hours later, he pops up, and he's on. The, he's he's at. He's right at the gate. He's four feet from the guards, and he's like, I see the guards. They are glaring at me. They won't talk to me. They keep telling me to get back. I'm telling them who I am. And then Mullah Mike says, tell, ask them if they will take your phone and I will talk to them. They won't take my phone. They keep telling me to push back and my battery power is going down. I'm below 20%. And, you know, we're like, oh my God, if he loses, if he loses battery power, that's it. It's over. 
you know, we're not going to be able to, we're not going to be able to do that. So the, the three special forces guys, we huddle up and we're like, okay, we're going to put him on a, st- a scheduled communications plan where we tell him to shut his phone down and he can only come up on that phone once an hour for five minutes and then back down as he's sitting in this hot baking sun in front of the gate trying to get in with thousands and thousands of people. Two other people died um, right next to him that were crushed. And so, and because he had to hold his position, his safe house was burned. He couldn't go back. This was it. This was the mission decision line you often hear me talk about. He had crossed that mission decision line. So the three of us, we gave him the plan. He's a disciplined person. He understood what needed to happen. He said, Roger, and he shut his phone down. So we went to work. As soon as that happened, and I have to give mad props to the team, they started to, they started to get after it. They started to, to look for ways and share information. Who do we know inside Kabul International Airport that can just go get him and pull him across the line? He's four feet away. Who do we know? And um, we didn't know anybody, but we started, that became our guiding question. And so I want to throw that out right here just as a, as a learning point is we still didn't know the, 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 we knew the real sticking point was going to be getting him across that wire, getting him through that very vulnerable place uh, from, from, from uh, insurgent territory into coalition territory. Like it's the longest four feet. It's like playing, uh, you know, it's like it's trying to make a drive into the end zone, right? That last yard, the longest yard. That's what we were facing, the longest yard. And so how do we cross this longest yard, right? You know, and not get him compromised right here at the gate or shot by our own people. And so we started asking ourselves that question, who do we know on the inside? And at the time it was so chaotic, so many forces coming in and out of the country. We had no eyes inside the airport, but we had relationships and we had Baconology, six degrees of Kevin Bacon. So we started working that angle. We would make uh, send an email out to I'm check with this person at State Department because I think they might know somebody who just went in there. And they would come in and say, here's what I found. I found this roster right here. Try this. Nope, dead end. Okay, well, I found this roster here. They're saying this is the most recent number. Try that. And by the way, to even get him to the right gate was a nightmare. We had to do the same thing. He had to bounce around different gates as we talked to people on the inside that told us which gates were closed, which gates were open. So we were doing the same thing now to find somebody that could just go down and get him out, okay? Finally, we found this person. I'm not going to give his name. I'm just going to call him Jay. He worked for state, and he, and, and he said, yeah, um, you know, that he's at the right gate, um, but there's nothing we can do right now. We can't, we can't get him in. And, and, but it turns out that the reporter who was talking to him, shared that, you know, shared the backstory of who we were and what was going on. And this guy's special forces too, in a former life. Um, and um, connection was made. And I don't know what happened. I don't know what was done. But um, he, told the, uh, he told the reporter, hey, if you just use the call sign pineapple, um, he'll be able to get in. And sure enough, that's what he did. And we passed that down. Um, and the guards yelled out when, when, uh, space monkey came back up on his phone, the guards yelled out, uh, for him. And he said the word pineapple, they came over, they got him and they moved him in. And the elation that happened, uh, inside that room across all kinds of, from Washington, DC to 
Afghanistan to Texas um, to Tampa was indescribable. I, I, I will tell you for me, um, I just kind of went to my knees and just kind of um, just let it all release for a few minutes because um, I didn't realize how much I had been holding in um, and how many years I'd been holding that in. But it was a very, very powerful moment when he got in on the other side. Um, it, uh, he's still got a long ways to go. He's still got a lot to do, and we still have a lot of work to do to help him. And by the way, he's one of the lucky ones. You know, there are thousands and thousands of women and children, orphans who don't have this kind of advocacy, who are facing bitter oppression and would like nothing more than to get out. And I don't, I I know we're not going to get them. Um, We'll get some of them. But we got Space Monkey out, and I, and, I, and I have a feeling that that guy will probably end up joining the Army Special Forces and will find his way back in that country, and, and his, his chapter is not written yet. Um, but what I, the, what, what I took away from that experience, to me, it is a universal singular. What we did on that day, um, while it was really special, there are thousands and thousands of Americans, Canadians, Westerners, Afghans collaborating right now to get people out of there or to get people to safety or to help them find a way to survive. Um, and it, 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 it speaks so much to my heart on an emotional level, on a moral level, to see that we can come together like that, that we can set our differences aside and, and, and really play at our highest level as human beings, which is to connect around hard problems and, and come together and, and name them and frame them and tame them in a way that we create these strategic outcomes. You know? And so I want to bring it back to the conversation that Peter and I had where he asked that question is, you know, how do you lead when you just absolutely don't know what's going to happen next, when you've been kicked in the teeth and, and you just don't even know if, if you're going to be able to move forward? And, and, and I just I offer that story to you, Peter. I offer that to anybody right now who is in that dark place. Because I can tell you right now, a few days ago, I was in a very dark place. Uh, Space Monkey was in a very dark place. We all were, and we still are. Like, we're still there. I mean, we got him out, but now we're trying to get family members out, and we're trying to get, you know, it, it, is, it, is, it, is, it is really rough. But the thing is, all we can do as leaders is commit ourselves to the task at hand and then surround ourselves with the people who can help us name that problem, frame that problem, and tame that problem, and stay with them, and let them know that we're with them. You know, my role in the whole thing as we went through it is I would pull up and say, okay, everybody, let me tell you where I think we are right now. In the last two hours, uh, C did this, and in the last uh, 30 minutes, Ed did this on the manifest. And so, uh, what we, you know, that's where we've been. Here we are right now. This is what we're working on. We're working on getting him to move in the next few minutes. And let's talk about where we're going for a second. So once he's on the other side, I just want to make sure that a couple of us are thinking about making sure he gets fed once he's in there. Do you see what I mean? It's storytelling in real time, where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. And we're not, we don't always know what the outcome is going to be, right? But we can always tell the story about where we've been, we can always, you know, and I would remind uh, everybody in there of like, look, looking about where we were yesterday, right? And we were in some serious struggle, right? And, and the, uh, but look at where we are now. 
you know, and, and, and the ability to look to the past and invoke struggle, which is a biological necessity, and, and show how people are overcoming and coping with struggle. We would make jokes in there about, you know, people were sleepwalking and not getting any sleep or whatever. And, and, but we talked, we invited struggle to the party, right? It was part of it. It's, it's embrace the suck is a very, very real thing. And it's not just reserved for military or, or rescue operations, right? You know, but the, but the leader has to be the storyteller and she has to be the storyteller in real time. She has to, you know, it's not about telling people what to do, right? It's not about your hands on your hips because I said so, damn it. I mean, there's a time and place for that. But anybody can do coercion, right? It's not, it's not that difficult of a task. That's why anger is a secondary emotion, right? But what, but what it does take is a special skill and a special level of commitment to be the storyteller in a way that is functional, not in a kumbaya, I'm okay, you're okay way. There's a time and place for that kind of cheerleading. But, but in, in real time, as you're navigating the problem, is using narrative and narrative discourse or the back and forth exchange of narrative to talk about where you've been, where you are, where you're going or what you're seeing. It's actually how our brain is wired to function. And we did that. And, and there was a lot of ill, you know, the problem was ill-structured. So the way we talked about it was ill-structured. It was narrative. It was back and forth. But everybody was also disciplined. If you didn't have relevance to the problem on that particular topic, you held quiet or you asked a thoughtful, open-ended question. Rather than saying what we needed to do next, we asked questions of ourselves. What do we need to, how do we find someone on the inside who can bring Nizam across? That was a guiding question that I posed to the group and the group went and found the answer and they found it brilliantly. And I stepped back and I stayed back from that and allowed them to find it. And then we formalized it into an approach. And, you know, again, we made a lot of mistakes along the way, but we got him through. You know, we got him through. And as I, as I record this, he will be, you know, um, going through the visa process, uh, fingers crossed, and ultimately coming to the United States. And it wasn't the last wicked problem I faced, and it won't, you know, the first, and it won't be the last, but it was one of those ones that put me to my knees. And if it worked in that situation, I believe it can work for a catering company. I believe it can work for a steel company that's trying to limp its way through a two-year pandemic, right? How we show up and how we lead as leaders, we need to realize we're not always going to know the answers. What we, our people need to know we're not going to leave them. Our people need to know that we're right there with them. Our people need to know that their inputs and their narrative on what they're seeing is not only valuable, it's essential to framing and taming the problem. And our ability to listen, to ask thoughtful, open-ended questions, to guide discussions, and to apply uh, some level of structure where people apply, you have discipline toward the relevance of the problem and unified to a singular solution. That's how it goes. That's the complex world we live in. You know, we live in a world of chaos. We live in a world of complexity. Ordered structure, which is what we all prefer, is not coming anytime soon. We're all on a path back to order, as Sean Coyne says, and we want to get back to order. But to do that, we have to move out of chaos and into complexity. And we are knee deep in complexity right now. And then Delta comes along and throws some more chaos at us. But how we navigate that, I believe, is contained in this story. I believe that it is contained in what Peter is doing right now, and I believe it's contained in how you lead your people in times that are unclear, scary, uh, 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 ambiguous. And, you know, I'll, I'll leave you with this quote from my friend um, Carl, Carl Bury, who is my acting coach and just a wonderful human being, because I was doing the play last out, and I was very, very nervous about it. I didn't know how my, my peers were going to receive it. I didn't know how my friends were going to receive it. Um, and he said, Scott, you know, um, 
vulnerability is is not knowing what's going to happen next and still taking the stage. And I'm paraphrasing, but I just thought that was the most beautiful definition of vulnerability is because leaders, we're not always going to have the answers, particularly now. We're not going to know what's going to happen next. We just can't, right? But what we, what we do know is we know where we've been and we know where we are and we know where we're going, right? And we know that we're, we can communicate to our people that we're not going to leave them. And we know that we have relationships that matter and that we can build new relationships. And that in a time of, of uncertainty you know, that is vulnerability is just being okay with that and just taking the stage, taking the mic, doing what you have to do and knowing that you don't know the answers and, and communicating that and being okay with that. I believe that is the definition of vulnerability. It gave us the ability to put last out and the film into the world at a time that looking at what's happening right now, people are really going to need it. Um, so there it is. I'm going to leave it there. I'm really tired. I didn't, I, I've been dreading kind of doing this because I knew it was going to take it out of me, but that's the one hour um, rendition of how we saved Space Monkey. And uh, I can't wait to hug his neck. I can't wait to see him. Um, I'm so grateful to all of the people um, who stepped up and, and who did this and that came from all different walks of life. You know, I don't even know if we'll even see each other again. Um, but we were there when it counted. And um, I'm reminded by how powerful relationships and uh, connection are in the darkest of moments. And um, everybody who was involved in that taught me more about myself and more about life in the last few days um, than I could ever repay. And I'm eternally grateful to that. And I hope that I was able to, in some way, honor this experience because I know it'll never get told anywhere else. And, and to all of those who are doing this over and over again, I mean, you haven't slept in days. You are, um, oh my God, you're going through so much to bring them home and to get them out. I just know that uh, we pray for you. And if you're listening to this and you're a veteran or a military family member or a Gold Star member, don't listen to the mouth breathers who tell you this was a pointless war. Don't listen to the pontificators who have no skin in the game. And even if they have skin in the game, they, they, there's, there's pain there that causes that to be said. I can tell you as, a, as, a, as an analyst, as a special operator, as a strategic contributor, um, and as someone who fought there, um, the sacrifice that was made in Afghanistan and that continues to be made there w was beyond worth it. It was beyond worth it. It kept terror from coming to our shores in an organized fashion. And you mark my words, um, don't count the Afghan people out yet. The work that was done there, the space that was provided to them to live, work, grow, educate themselves, learn about themselves and what they want for themselves, that, is not, that has not fizzled out yet. Those people that are sprinting to those airplanes, they're trying to find a better life. And some of them will go back to that country. Some of them will remain. But um, it, it was worth it, in, it, it more than we'll ever know and may not even see it in our lifetime, but it will, it will be there. So to all of you, uh, thanks for what you do. Thanks for letting me... Um, move through this podcast. It meant a lot to me. Um, and, and it meant a lot to me to, to storytell to you in real time. Um, not what I wanted to do necessarily, but what I needed to do because the emotion for this will fade. The memory will fade, but I think there are some deep lessons in here for all of us as we go through, uh, what could potentially be some more challenging times in the coming months. Love you guys. And I'll see you on the rooftop.